starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Barnabas, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you in humble adoration for you are a God who is high and lofty. You are a God who is sovereign. You are king and creator. You hold all things in your hand and you move it according to the purposes of your will for your glory. Father, we confess that we are small and we think we're powerful, but in weeks like these, we are reminded just how tiny and minuscule we are. We can't even quell the worries and fears of our heart. Nonetheless, how could we even control the wind and the waves? But Father, you are have all things and work all things from the depths of the ocean to the furthest reaches of the universe. There is not a rebel molecule that is beyond your control. Father, we thank you that you have in love and mercy revealed yourself to us, not to um, demand that we climb to you, but Father, you in humility came to us into our weakness, into our suffering, into our messiness. You came to save us from our weakness and our suffering and our messiness and above all our sin. But we have traded the glory of uh, everlasting, infinite God for the glory of passing things, good things that we have corrupted because we have made them ultimate things. Father, we pray this week for our neighbors in the Bahamas and for Puerto Rico as they have uh, sustained the storm. Father, we pray for um, our governor, our senators, for the faithful men and women who will send their families away and stay behind as first responders. Father, we pray, Lord, for those who are displaced from their homes, Lord, that you would protect them and bring them home safely. Father, we pray and we thank you that even in the midst of the storm, you know our names and you provide what we need when we need it in the amount that we need, and we need you above all things. Use this storm to cause our hearts to realize our weakness 
and turn to the, our God who is strong, who cares for his people. Father, use this text this morning through the weakness of my proclamation to transform it by the power of your spirit that we may see Christ better, love him more, and serve him more faithfully. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A couple things I, I just always want to bring out. Um, why do we do the confession of sin and assurance of pardon? Because the Lord calls us to, as corporately as a people, to confess our sins together. Uh, another thing, we had a lady come up recently when we started doing this, is how much she enjoys this and how she had missed this from previous times. And what she will do is she will take this, her bulletin, and she will pray through the confession of sin and assurance of pardon. And what is happening is the, we are teaching one another how to pray in these and how to confess our need. And it guides us in our prayers as you pray for not only our confession of sin personally, but we pray for our brothers and sisters in other countries. We pray for other churches and for our community. We're praying for those people. And why do we do the children's story? I simply want to model what family worship should look like in your home. Um, clearly, it's not glorious. There's no angels singing. There's no lights shining from heaven. Usually children are lifting their skirts above their head, picking their nose and saying things, uh, not paying attention. And sometimes in the midst of that messiness, the Spirit is working to cause people's, these children's hearts to love them and remind us how much we are little children not paying attention and the Lord has to get a hold of our hearts. So that's why we do uh, often what we do. I want to start this morning with a poem I came across, and Andrew's going to drive for me for a minute. It's called Three Dollars Worth of God. I'd like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul and to disturb my sleep. Not enough to take control of my life. I just want enough to equal a good, warm cup of milk. Just enough to ease some of the pain from my guilt. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I'd like to find a love that is pocket-sized. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant, not enough to change my heart. I can only stand just enough to take to church when I have time, just enough to equal a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy not transformation. I want warmth of the, of the womb, not a new birth. I'd like to purchase a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. If it doesn't work, I'd like to get my bunny back. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I'd like to hide some for a rainy day, not enough for people to see a change in my life, not enough to impose any responsibility, just enough to make folks think I'm okay. Could I get just $3 worth of God, please? When we come to the text this morning, sometimes when we get to texts like this, we gloss over them. And we jump on to something more. But we hear the voice of Jesus calling his disciples and people to follow him. And I ask you this morning, how much of God do you desire? How much of your life are you comfortable giving to Jesus? Some of you say, well, 
I'd like to tithe my life. I'll give you 10% of my life, but nothing more. What percentage of your life, Ocean Park, are you willing to give to Jesus? Enough to scratch your itch, enough to make you, uh, give you the power and the privilege or the comfort that you crave, enough to make other folks think you're okay. Or are you willing to give Jesus everything and to find your identity solely in Him? This morning, we're going to see three sets of people who would experience the Jesus. We'll experience the crowds that pushed upon Him. We'll see the demons that screeched and, and were appalled by Him. And we'll see a ragtag group of misfits who would become to be known as the Twelve. And ultimately, all three groups will teach us this, that genuine disciples of Jesus follow Him on His terms, not their own. Genuine followers of Jesus follow Him on His terms, not their own. And we do this, again, uh, we want to break this up nicely in three points. I know there's a lot of words up here right now, but I will repeat them, I promise. You can't follow Jesus to get what you really want. You can't follow Jesus to get what you really want. You can't follow Jesus to control Him. You can't follow Jesus to control Him. And then finally, we'll see that you can't follow Jesus without losing yourself. You can't follow Jesus without losing yourself. So let's jump in in verses 7 through 10. You can't follow Jesus to get what you really want. Jesus, at this point, this is a transition verses that um, takes us away from these five areas where Jesus is in direct confrontation with the religious leaders, and Jesus withdraws for a period of time uh, because his time is not yet ready to be full-scale confrontation with the religious leaders, which he knows will result in his death. So he pulls back and he with, with, retreats back into, the, um, into his home, in the home area, just to find a new obstacle and a new challenge that comes. It's the overwhelming crowds. And in Mark chapter 3, as news of Jesus' miracles begin to spread, his fame and word of his power not just is no longer just contained in Galilee, but it is spreading miles and miles away. Notice in verse 7 and 8, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a, sea of Galilee, and a great crowd followed from Galilee to Judea and to Jerusalem and Idumea and far beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. See, Jesus here is not just a hometown boy done well and that his parents are proud of him. The word of Jesus is rapidly spreading all throughout the area. And this is it's really small, and I apologize, but um, I tried to get an idea. And you can see with the yellow lines the names that are, are, are highlighted. You have uh, Idumea, which is all right near the Dead Sea, in Jerusalem and Judea. 
Jesus is here at the Sea of Galilee. So you have his popularity here. Uh, they talk about the other sides of the Jordan. And then as far north is Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus is no longer just a local phenomena that a few people say, hey, look at what Jesus is doing. Let's go find out. He is, the word is spreading like wildfire fire all through the region. And people are coming to Jesus to be delivered from the oppression of physical suffering and also spiritual suffering, the demons that have overtaken them. And it has gotten to a point that it is overwhelming Jesus and he has, and he's pulling back a little bit. Verse 9 and 10, And Jesus told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowds. Probably one of the fishing boats of uh, Peter and John. Um, lest they crush him, they had he, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed about him to touch him. The desperate throngs of people in that region when Jesus was there just simply wanted to touch him, and so that he, they could be healed. Why? Because they have never, ever seen anything like Jesus. Someone coming by who could simply touch a person and the disease was chased away and the demon that held them in bondage would free them from affliction. And so every, they did whatever they could. And we see where friends drop their friends down through the roof just to get to Jesus. And this word is spreading faster and faster and faster. If Jesus can deliver them, Jesus can deliver me. And they went from miles and miles of wrong. Now, sometimes when we read through the gospel, we import bad children's stories of Jesus into the Bible. Uh, one of my uh, professors at, at, in seminary went through a long list of Bible stories and held up the book and read it and said, these are so different than what the narrative actually said. See, what happens is we have this beautiful, picturesque picture of Jesus um, with salon-quality hair, with a gentle breeze blowing through his hair. And you have puppies and sheep and butterflies and children frolicking around him. And you have the disciples who are neat and clean and tidy, gently directing everybody's single file into a line. Jesus will be with you in about 10 minutes, and he will heal you. The, re the actuality was more like, let's think the O.J. Simpson case, when all the press was on the foot of the courthouse waiting for just a glimpse of OJ and his team, or, or I can't remember the, the, the prosecution, for a glimpse of them to come out and what would happen? The press would storm these people with microphones and cameras screaming and asking questions just for a news bit, and they would almost overwhelm the attorneys and the defendant. And you see this all the time when defendants or politicians are coming and going to places the press overwhelms them, so much so that they have to put barriers out of the way. And you can just see in your mind, Jesus is being overwhelmed. The disciples are, are holding them back and people in desperation are trying to touch Jesus. This is what's going on right now. And so you have this whenever the crowds are mentioned in the book of Mark, almost always they're an obstacle to get to Jesus. We'll see in a few chapters, there was a little hand in one of these times that reached through a woman who was desperate 
and had spent all her money on physicians that could not solve her problem. But she reached through and touched Jesus because it was, and she was infused with faith. She was made whole. But on the most, the crowds aren't seen as success for Jesus or seen as faith. They were coming to Jesus, not for Jesus, for who he was. They were coming to Jesus for what they could get out of Jesus. And as you can see, this is a problem. But Jesus, what did he do? In his mercy and compassion, he healed them and he taught them. So he would have gotten this fishing boat that maybe just a few feet off the off the, the ocean or deep enough where people wouldn't bring their, their lame and sick in there. And he sat in the boat and he taught them. And then he would take time that he would heal them and, and deliver from, for their needs. But these crowds were never a sign of success or genuine faith. These crowds needed to be brought past their need into the kingdom of heaven by faith in Christ. Because proximity to Jesus does not mean that you faith, have faith in Jesus. We see this time and time again as we read through the book of Mark. And I would encourage you, make it a habit to read a chapter a day, a chapter a day. We'll be in Mark a while, just keep rotating through so you know it better than me or you know it in such a way and take notes and highlight and things as they come along. But I want to ask you, as we think of these crowds pressing up to Jesus, why are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus to get a better job, to fix your marriage and to fix your kids, to heal your diseases, to give you rest from your labors, to provide you health and wealth, or to pay your bills? Jesus is able to do all of these things. He's able to provide the things that are pressing, the urgent things that are, in our, uh, that are in our face. Yet coming to Jesus doesn't always fix our problem and our greatest problem if you're not actually a follower of Jesus. That these things, it only means that you recognize that Jesus has power to fix your problems. But what happens if Jesus chooses not to fix your problems? What happens when he remains beyond your reach and then when he teaches you the nature of the kingdom, it doesn't fix your immediate problems? Are you still able to follow him? We're going to see in a few uh, weeks the parable of the sower where for a while the seed is sown in hearts of people and it grows quickly and with joy. But the sustaining power of the Spirit is not there and the worries of the world choke it away and the pleasures of this world cause it to wither and die. Why? Because they were never genuine followers of Jesus. They were following Jesus to get something out of Jesus and get what they really wanted. They weren't following Jesus because who he is. Why do you follow Jesus? What is your only hope in life and death? My hope is that Jesus will give me a better job. If I get a better job, it's going to take care of all my problems. If, my, if Jesus will take care of my dad, if Jesus will help me with my kids, if Jesus will heal my marriage, if Jesus will fix my disease, if Jesus will give me rest for my labors, if Jesus will provide health and wealth and pay my bills, that's my hope. 
Or is it your hope that the words of the Heidelberg Catechism say, that I am not my own, but I belong in body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the power of the enemy. He preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a single hair can fall from my head. My head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. How do you answer the question of why you follow Jesus? Are you following him for what you can get out of him or because of who he is and what he has done to redeem you from your sin? I would like to buy $3 worth of Jesus, please. Not enough to take control of my life. I want just enough to equal a warm cup of milk. Just enough to ease some of the pain from my guilt. Or do you follow Jesus because you are a genuine follower of Christ? Remembering that genuine disciples of Jesus follow him on his terms and not their own. You can't follow Jesus to get what you really want. That's not what genuine followers do. And genuine followers can't follow Jesus in an attempt to control him. We see as we go in verses 11 and 12, you can't follow Jesus to control him. Notice verse 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. It's always an odd experience as you're reading through. Jesus is refusing this free publicity of healed people and demons. He's like, be quiet. Be silent. Don't say anything. You're like, why? Isaiah, or I'm, excuse me, Irish playwright and poet Oscar Wilde penned the well-known proverb of self-promotion. He write, the only thing worse than not being talked about is not, uh, uh, wait, I'm sorry. Let me take that back. The only thing worse than, than being talked about is not being talked about. And this is really the mantra of many celebrities and politician athletes that, who say bad press is better than no press. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus began, as Jesus began in Mark 1.15, to spread the news of the kingdom and he announced the arrival uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He told the spirits who are crying out, you are the son of God, to be silent. And you would think he would embrace this free publicity and see uh, even these demons and use this in his speeches. Oh, look, even the demons realize who I am and you people don't know who I am. Why don't you believe like the demons do? But even the, the off-note screeches of the demons are not the proper representatives of Jesus. The demons were not seeking to endorse Jesus. The demons were seeking to control Jesus. Their confessions were not homage, but they were trying to um, pronounce his name and reveal his identity and able to discredit him. Think Scooby-Doo 
at the end of every episode of Scooby-Doo when they, the kids rip the mask off and the guy says, you pesky kids, if I, you hadn't been here, I would have got away with this. The demons are trying to say, we know who you are, we know why you're here, and they're trying to expose him and take um, power over him. We see this all throughout this common phenomenon through scriptures. And the woman said to Elijah, why have you come against me? And notice what she says, oh man of God trying to expose him for who he is. You have come to bring my, my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. I'm going to expose you, and I'm going to make you go on the defense and make you prove your way, the onus, put the onus on you and prove it so I can have control and I can control the situation. You've got to remember, as we walk through, all of us know that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, who didn't? Everybody at this time. The only people who knew the true identity of Jesus, not his disciples, clearly not his mother and his brothers who are coming up in here in a few weeks. The demons were the only one who knew the true identity of who Jesus was. Their screams were a desperate attempt to gain an advantage over Jesus and to distract and to thwart his mission. Yet these demons who were able to hold the mind and bodies of people in their diabolical grip were rendered like poodles with muzzles on before their master. They were rendered, rendered impotent before the authoritative word of Jesus, for Jesus will not and cannot be controlled. And he looks at these dastardly demons and says, be quiet be silent, not another word. And a, suddenly a hush comes over the crowd when they realize we're not playing with your average teacher. We have never seen anyone like this. The forces of darkness and the powers of evil tremble and in silence before him. We learn as we go through this, if you follow Jesus, with conscious or unconscious desire to control him and manipulate him toward your purposes, it's both foolish and naive. God will not be mocked, and Jesus is not your lapdog. He's not your ace up your sleeve. He doesn't exist for your entertainment. He's not your get-out-of-hell card free. And I warn you, if you're following Jesus because you think he's some sort of divine butler or cosmic genie, you are not a genuine disciple of Jesus. You are actually an imposter whose citizenship is in the kingdom of darkness. Genuine disciples do not seek to control Jesus, but they seek Jesus to control them in mind, in body, and soul. Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 8. Keep your fingers there in Mark uh, 3, but go a few pages to your right. It's on page 80. That's not right. It's a few pages to your right. I don't have the right page number in my notes. But Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 35. Notice, uh, this is the context. Jesus has the disciples near him. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, He, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and after three days rise again. And He said this plainly, and notice, notice what He says, 
And Peter took him aside and began to what? Rebuke him. This word is the... The same Greek word is the one where Jesus told the demons to be silent. Or, or to that. Peter says the same thing. So Peter's like, listen, this whole suffering, this whole dying, this is, not, this is not appropriate, Jesus. You need to stop and you need to be quiet. And can you imagine? Can you imagine? Jesus, can I have a word with you here? You need to stop it. And, and it wasn't just, I don't like that. It was, be quiet. Jesus is like, pray tell. Uh, so he continues. Verse 35, or 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Same Greek word uh, that Jesus did towards the demons, that Peter did towards Jesus. Jesus, hush. Peter said, get behind me, what? Satan. You're doing the work of Satan, not the kingdom of God. For you are not set, you're setting your mind on the, not setting your minds on the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus says, you need to come back here and you need to hear something. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's We'll save it, and we'll see that in a few weeks down the road. The cost of following Jesus is losing control of your life and giving it to Jesus. And for many of us, type A people, that's hard. That's painful. It's not as easy as Carrie Underwood makes it sound like, Jesus, take the wheel. Uh, it's painful to let control the cost of following Jesus is losing control of your life and giving it to Jesus. You can't manipulate Jesus into doing what you want. You can't harness your power to further his agenda. You must give him complete control over your mind and over your body and your heart to be a genuine disciple of Jesus. So let me ask you, are you following Jesus so he can further your kingdom and make you more comfortable? Or are you following Jesus because you have surrendered to his rule and to his kingdom. I'd like to buy $3 worth of Jesus, please. Just enough to equal a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. If it doesn't work, I'd like to give it back. Or are you following him because he is your only hope in life and death? Because genuine disciples of Jesus follow him on his terms, not their own. You can't follow Jesus for what you really want. You can't follow Jesus to control him. And you can't follow Jesus without relinquishing control. We see this in verses 13 through 19. Jesus, when he came, didn't come on a solo mission, even though the work, the bulk of the work was for him, but he was coming to create a worldwide community, a new people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, a people that was not distinguished by ethnicity, but it was distinguished is that they belonged to Jesus, and they were redeemed by his body and blood, and they were united together from every tribe and every tongue and a nation. A beautiful, colorful tapestry of the redeemed who will praise him and give him glory for all eternity. 
And it started on a mountain that overlooked the Sea of Galilee. Verse 13, And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired, and they came to Him. Again, Mark is showing that Jesus is leading a new, ex, uh, new exodus. And just as Moses ascended up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments when God summoned him, Jesus, the new summit, the new uh, uh, pinnacle of God's glory, summoned his disciples to himself and dis genuine disciples were summoned by not by their will, but by His will and His calling. In the first century, rabbis were chosen by the students. Just very similar. You take your children to college trips and pick the college you like. That's how rabbis were chosen. But Jesus' disciples were chosen, and actually the word is created, just as God created the heavens and the earth, Disciples were created by the will and the call and the word of Jesus. He calls them to himself. And what does it say? And they obeyed. And they followed him to the summits. Disciples do not consist in what disciples can do for Jesus, but what Jesus can make in his disciples. And we see this discipleship, because this is really the, one of the themes of Mark. The, what does it mean to be a genuine disciple of Jesus? We try to repeat this a lot. The call of Jesus was a call to had two key aspects of discipleship. To be with Jesus and to be sent by Jesus. To be with Jesus and to be sent by Jesus. The first thing you'll notice in verse 14 and 15 about that he said that he called them to himself that what? That they might what? Be with Jesus. First aspect of discipleship, before you can go and do and go into all the work, you have to be with Jesus. Discipleship is a relationship before it's a task. It's a who before it's a what. You can't be with Jesus until you forsake the presence of the world and follow the call of Jesus and come and learn his heart and learn his desires and learn his teaching. And this is, this is a lot harder than it appears because you think of the disciples, oh, that's great. They're there when the sick and the lame are raised and when uh, the dead are arisen and they, they passed out the bread and they picked up the scraps and they prayed with Jesus. And they seem to work, him, but you begin to see in Gethsemane, in his agony, they had to be with Jesus and their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. The twelve were this bumbling uh, misfits that followed Jesus and said the wrong stupid thing over and over and over again because they didn't get it though they were with Jesus and it took a long time coming to be with Jesus and the work of the Spirit to transform them and to open up their eyes that they may be like Jesus and they may know Jesus so they would follow him wherever he would lead to share the toil of his ministry to uh, receive the harassment of the crowds and then eventually to drink the same bitter cup that Jesus drank. Being with Jesus qualified the twelve to bear witness to him and to participate in his distinctive ministry of proclamation and the overthrow of the demonic powers of darkness that exist in our world. Being with Jesus is the formative time that we have 
where the apostles were qualified and made and created into the foundation of the church that we, for the last two millenniums, have stood upon. I ask you as you think about this reality of discipleship, of being with Jesus, are you a disciple of Jesus? Or are you simply in proximity to Jesus? Are you with Jesus? Are you attempting to maintain maintain control of your life while adding Jesus as a garnish on top? Have, Have you surrendered the control of your life to Jesus and sat in humility at his feet to hear his words, to be challenged, to be transformed, and to be sent into the world? If so, are you developing and growing in your knowledge of his heart and his desires. J.C. Riles talks about ministers, but I think this is a very applicable thing to all of us in light of all of us are disciples of Jesus. It says, like the apostles, the faithful, and I put disciple in here, ought to keep up close communion with Christ. He should be much with Jesus. His fellowship should be with the Son. He should abide in Him. He should be separate from the world and daily sit like Mary at Jesus' feet and hear His words. He should study Him and copy Him and drink in His Spirit and walk in His step. He should strive to be able to say, that which we have seen and we heard from Jesus, we declare unto you. In a world with infinite amusements, entertainment, and distractions, what are you doing to be with Jesus? So that you may know his heart, and that you may learn his teaching, and that you may drink deep of his refreshing grace. That you may have a deep reservoir in the times of parched souls and suffering and and persecution from this world. Where disciples are called to be with Jesus, but also are sent by Jesus. Discipleship cannot happen without the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Discipleship, disciples are messengers of good news, and they're catalysts of the deliverance that has led them away from the bondage of this world. Disciples of Jesus are sent to preach. Not three points from a poem, because few of you will do that, but all of our lives are constant service, all our sermon. All of our lives are preaching of the good news of great joy to all the world. We are articulating with our words implicitly and explicitly the story of redemption that God has accomplished through Christ that is to be brought to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So when you share the gospel, you are not saying what I feel about Jesus or how my life has changed. Because you can say that to your lost friend or somebody that that doesn't believe in Jesus, and they can say, I can tell you all how good I feel about Islam or Buddhism or secularism or my own idol worship. And they can tell you all how their life has changed. But the reality is that disciples of Jesus preach who Christ is and what he has done about through his life and his death and resur- resurrection. That's the gospel. We don't proclaim how we feel. We proclaim what God, who Christ is and what he has done. 
And believe me, that has long-term ramifications on our lives and our feelings and our experiences. And honestly, sometimes you preach Jesus and you believe in Jesus and your life will get progressively more difficult. And when it does, you can say, I'm not following Jesus because I thought he was going to make my life better. I'm following Jesus because he has changed the trajectory of my eternity, and now I can be with God forever and know him forever. The church doesn't sit on the sidelines talking about the power of God. They're sent into the world with the authority to cast out demons. Disciples of Jesus don't just receive the power of God, but they extend that power through the preaching of the word that when the Spirit transforms the heart of lost people, it begins to cause deliverance from the oppression that they have. We don't just sit on the sideline and talk about the power of God, but we go into the world and confront the evil that exists with the power of the gospel. The disciples of Jesus are not called to be to live in separations of, of compounds in the, in the backwoods of Idaho, or to go into the Middle East, into the uh, isolations of monasteries, but we're called to go into the life of Christ, into the marketplace and the office space and the living room and the homeless shelters and the brothels with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that lets people go free from the oppression of the darkness of the kingdom of this world. We're called to confront the demonic forces of racism and oppression and corruption and hedonism and idolatry and secularism with the liberating power and light of the gospel. You don't take that light and hold, put it in a basket. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. We go into the darkest of places with confidence in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the light of the gospel will shine the light on the oppression and lead the captives out of their chains to the, the kingdom of heaven. You cannot be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, Ocean Park, and be silent. You are a messenger of the good news of Jesus Christ. And use, let me say, a silent disciple is of little use to the church of Christ. There's no, there are no better than a, there's nothing better than a lampless lighthouse, a silent trumpeter, a sleeping watch, watchman, or an artificial fire. You cannot maintain control over your life and sovereignty over your circumstances and follow Jesus. His love must be your loves. His way must be your way. His mission must be your mission. And his heart must be your heart. You cannot, or you cannot be a genuine disciple of Jesus. You are like the crowds or the demons that are near. You must relinquish control to be with Jesus and to go and preach Jesus. Like to buy $3 worth of Jesus, please. Not enough for people to see a change in me. Not enough to impose any responsibility. Just enough to make folks think I'm okay. Could I get just $3 worth of God, please? Genuine disciples of Jesus follow him on his terms, not their own. The final words, he appointed the twelve, Simon to one who called the name Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, the one he named Bart Bonergis, that is the sons of thunder, 
Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Twelve ordinary men. Fishermen and tax collectors and political radicals and many we absolutely know nothing about. Yet their names in this text stand as silent witnesses to the surpassing greatness of the extraordinary power of God that works through the ordinary. We assemble this morning today, some 2,000 years later, to sing and to read and to listen to the Word of God proclaimed because these men heeded the call of Jesus to lay down their life and follow Jesus. What started even on an anonymous mountain, we don't even know which mountain Jesus was on, it just said a mountain, with a bunch of band of misfit toys and the disciples who really we don't know a lot about, Jesus sent 12 ordinary men to the uttermost parts of the earth to bring the extraordinary power of the gospel. The gospel that has throughout the last two millennia penetrated the hardest heart and reached the most isolated tribe that has endured the most ruthless, ruthless persecution of tyrannical governments and radical religions. And it has been watered by the blood of the martyrs because these men submitted their lives to the call of Jesus Christ who said, follow me. There's a sober warning in the last few words of our text this morning. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. As we're going to see, as we read, you can be named among the faithful and be a wolf. You can be outwardly considered a disciple of Jesus, but end up to be a traitor. You can preach Christ, and you can do miracles in the name of Christ, but not know Christ. I ask you this morning, Ocean Park, are you a genuine disciple of Jesus? And if you are, you must follow him on his terms, not your own. Do you desire to buy $3 worth of Jesus? Or are you willing to give up everything to follow him? on his terms.